Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Jennifer Haig. Jennifer's novel Heat and Light won a 2017 Literature Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and was named a Best Book of 2016 by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and NPR. Her previous books have won the Penn Hemingway Award, the Massachusetts Book Award, and the Penn New England Award in Fiction, and have been published in 16 languages. Her short stories have appeared in The Atlantic, Granta, The Best American Short Stories, and many other places. We recorded last week at the Appalachian Writers' Workshop at Heinemann Settlement School in Heinemann, Kentucky, where I was a student in Jennifer's novel workshop. Jennifer grew up in a Pennsylvania mining town not unlike Bakerton, the fictional community at the heart of her books Baker Towers, News from Heaven, and Heat and Light. In this conversation, we talk about why we're compelled to write about Appalachia. We also discuss the fun of research, how writing a novel is an exercise in empathy, and why no one knows where her writing studio is. When I wake up in the morning, even before I open my eyes, my first thoughts are always about the novel I'm writing, about the characters. It's like that tape is, must be running all night while I'm sleeping, because those are my first thoughts when I'm not even totally awake yet. Since we're here in Appalachia, let's just start by talking about, you know, what about the region compels you as a novelist? I grew up in northern Appalachia in western Pennsylvania, and I think it was an ideal um, childhood for a young writer because I grew up in a family that was um, made up of storytellers. When you grow up in a very small town, you know, storytelling is your primary form of entertainment. And... um, this rich tradition of small town gossip, I think, um, lends itself to uh, to training young writers. Were you aware at the time that you were kind of collecting stories? No, no, it wasn't like that at all. Um, I have a huge extended family, and I spent a lot of time as a child in the company of adults, trying to make myself invisible to see what they were going to say when they thought no kids were around. Um, so there was there was nothing. Um, there was no method to it. I, I didn't. I wasn't training myself to be a writer. I was just um, curious about adults. I wanted to be an adult. I was that kind of kid too. I was very serious, and I kind of always wanted to talk to adults more than I wanted to talk to kids a yes. little bit. You know, you talked a bit in our workshop about that feeling of the the awareness of the siren at all times, and and I know that coal mining goes very deep in your family as a profession. How much did that influence the way you lived your life as a kid? Do you think? Well, none of it was conscious, of course, um, but my idea of normal as a child came from growing up in a mining town. My father was not a miner. Uh, both of my grandfathers were, and um, six of my uncles were miners. So it, it, that was the air I breathed, but it was, that was not the culture in my home. However, it was a, a completely normal thing to go to play at a friend's house and have to whisper and walk on tiptoe because... Her father worked hoot owl and he was sleeping off his shift. So that was a completely normal thing to me. I never thought of that as extraordinary, but of course it is. I wonder so much in my writing about Appalachia too, because so much of my, I think, frankly, my interest in it comes from having left it. And, and I think that it's really hard to spot that stuff until you're out, until you have some distance, or at least that's how I, I felt. Did you experience that? I think that's probably true for our entire generation of Appalachians, because certainly in my uh, home region, 
the economic climate is such that everybody my age and younger has had to leave. There's virtually no way to make a living there now since the mines shut down, probably beginning around the early 80s. Um, the mines were in a kind of death spiral. And, um, you know, by the time I was in high school, the mines were all over. So if you, if you're my age or your age and you need to earn a living, you want to support a family, you almost have no choice but to leave. And there is something about that experience of, of being in exile that makes you lonely for a place. And I think a lot of my writing about Appalachia stems from that kind of deep loneliness. It's a place I haven't lived much in my adult life, but a place that I'm always drawn back into in my work. I love that. Yeah. And I think that exile for me too, I, I think, I think what I keep coming back to about it is for me personally, it feels like a kind of loneliness that will never really be resolved because I don't see myself back here really. And that's a hard thing for me to have come around to admitting to myself that, you know, I, I kind of contain all of these different people and I think that they just don't, you know, for whatever reason, I love thinking about the place. I love being in the place sometimes but then I have to go. Do you, do you feel like you might make a home here? You know, I've fantasized about it at various times, but I, it does not seem very likely. There was a moment um, after my first book was published and um, my second book was under contract. I wasn't teaching. I, I wasn't married. I don't have kids. I had no ties to any other place. And if ever I was going to move back there, that would have been the time. You know, I could have picked up a house in my hometown for the price of a new car. And I didn't do it. I could have done it, and I didn't. And there are many reasons for that, but you know, primarily, I've been away from that place for so long that I no longer feel that I belong there, in much the same way as I feel like a foreigner in Boston, where I live now. I sound like a foreigner. I'll never really be a Bostonian. It's not something you can become unless your grandparents were Bostonians. So. Um, you know, wherever I am, I feel like something of an outsider. This must be what I resonated so much with with your books and, and why I wanted to study with you, because I, I feel the exact same way. You know, we're in Detroit now, and, and that has a very specific psychology, and especially with the, you know, the times that it's had recently, it's, you know, you're, you're kind of ride or die with Detroit, and if you're not from there, then, you know, you're just kind of watching everything happen, and, and to be sort of triangulated between these places and not kind of know... Yeah, I, I've been playing with a, a nonfiction project about place and identity, and um, I, I had this line in, in a draft of uh, something, I don't know what, um, I think the place that I belong doesn't exist. Yes, I like that line very much. I think that's a common feeling for writers, and it's probably a, a fortunate situation for writers. How so? Well, you know, I find it interesting that I... I do some of my best writing when I'm traveling in a foreign country where I do not speak the language. Normally, I have a hard time writing in cafes, writing in public spaces. I need to hole up in my writing studio with earplugs in total silence, looking at a blank wall in order to write. That's my normal protocol. But when I'm traveling internationally, I find myself for once able to write in a cafe because I'm surrounded by language and yet I don't understand any of it. So it's not... It's not percolating into my thoughts. I feel less lonely because there are people around me. There's activity. There's life. 
but I'm not distracted by it because I don't understand it. So there is something about that particular kind of loneliness where you're isolated by language that makes you hunger for the companionship of the page. If I were traveling with another person, I would probably seek out the company of my traveling companion. But because I prefer to travel alone, the only companion whose company I can seek out is the blank page. So I do lots and lots of writing when I travel. That's really interesting. I spoke to Garth Greenwell a few episodes ago, uh, who wrote What, Mo- what Belongs to You, um, which I just was in love with. And he, it, the premise of it is uh, a young English teacher is living in Bulgaria and teaching English to high schoolers there. And he is drawing comparisons between the gay cruising scene in Bulgaria in the kind of what is meant to be more or less contemporary Bulgaria, but also nineties Kentucky where Garth Greenwell actually grew up. And when he talked about his writing process, writing that book in Bulgaria, which he was doing from four 30 to six 30 in the morning every day before he went to teach, he spoke about how peculiar your relationship to your own language becomes when you're not speaking it every day and how specific, what a specific kind of headspace that put him in. It's terribly interesting. You know, um, for a year, I was a Fulbright teaching scholar in France after I finished my undergrad. And, um, you know, I, I speak French fluently. I was teaching in French. All the people I knew were French speakers. So I was essentially living my life in the French language. But there were um, a couple of students I had that I tutored in English. And that was the point in my life at which I lost my Appalachian accent because I was not comprehensible to somebody who was learning English as a second language. So I became hyper aware of the way I pronounced words and all my non-standard syntax gradually disappeared in that year because the only time I ever spoke English, it was to somebody who could not decode my regionalisms and I didn't want to make it any harder than it had to be. So I lost most of my accent. That's that's fascinating. One of the one of the first things that was drawn to my attention when I moved to New York and made friends not from West Virginia was that uh, we have this regionalism to drop the verb to be in needs to be. needs washed. Yeah, needs washed. We do the same yeah. thing. <laughs> it needs washed. Yeah. And uh, is uh, I know my we talked earlier this week that my mom's family is from southwestern Pennsylvania mining country, so not quite where you're from. But uh, is red up a, a phrase? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I have a I have a real soft spot for that as mm-hmm. a, a as a piece of. I think maybe maybe you have that in Baker Towers. I can't it remember is in if Baker somebody Towers. says red up. That's yeah. funny. It is in Baker Towers. Yeah. And it's funny too that you bring up France because I was just there. Uh, in June for a work assignment and I was sitting in a cafe and it was an exercise for me too about kind of being alone with yourself, which, you know, is another thing that a writer has to do a lot most of the time. And, um, and it was really striking to me then in, in a way that I don't think is always evident, but that Heinemann this week has really reinforced me too, that just like the kind of magic of language, you know, cause when you can't understand everything that's being said, I can speak like minimal, minimal rusty French. Uh, so more, I mean, I, and I certainly can't hear at the normal speed that people converse and it, you just, I was just so struck by, Oh, it's just, it, it's just symbol. Like we're just painting on caves. It just feels, I don't know. It feels, it felt like cosmic to me in a way that I think is not always available to me in English. What is your normal writing practice? Do you have a, do you kind of try to have a daily routine? You mentioned the wall and the earplugs, you know, do you, do you travel expressly to get writing done? I do. Um, I work very well at home. I I don't work in my house. I don't even try. I I rent a writing studio, um, 
in, in my neighborhood in Boston, but it's a bit of a walk from where I live. It's about 15 minutes walk. I did this expressly because it's just far enough that it takes some effort to get there. And if I'm having a day where writing is coming slowly and I'm tempted to just get up and go home, it's, you know, I've made a little effort to get there. So I'm likelier to stay a little bit longer and keep trying a little bit longer. Um, so I do work in this space every day. I typically work um, from about seven in the morning to 11. And then I go home and play with my dog and get outside and eat something. And, and then I go back for a second shift from about three to seven. And I find that those two shifts are really important for me because a very different kind of writing gets done for me in the morning versus the afternoon. When I start in the morning, I haven't had coffee. I haven't spoken to anybody. I'm just about rolling out of bed and, and going to my studio. So I'm still in almost a dreamlike state. And um, I'm not as self-critical as I am later in the day. My, my, my mind isn't completely firing on all cylinders yet. So I'm a little more indulgent with myself. And weirder stuff comes out in the morning. When I go back in the afternoon, I'm sometimes um, stunned by what I wrote in the morning and horrified. Um, but, but that's the point at which I, I work with it and make it intelligible and um, you know, make, it, make it real writing. But that first pass when I'm half asleep, it's, um, it's really valuable. So you're responding in the same day. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. That feels like a very short time. For, I mean, that, that's a little scary to me, that idea leaving. I feel like I need to leave my, the, the weird stuff. I feel like I need to let it sit a little bit longer, personally. I'll go back to it um, later, of course. But I'm sort of doing two drafts in one day. And the first draft, the sleepy draft, doesn't even count as a draft. I mean, that's just free associating a lot of its nonsense. Um, but often I can extract something from it and make something of it. So, so I do sort of these two drafts or one and a half drafts in the same day. And then the next day I just repeat the same method and I'm moving, moving ahead in the novel I'm writing. So I won't go back and look at what I wrote yesterday until I finish this draft, whether it's, you know, a year from now or 18 months from now. Uh, a fellow classmate in your workshop and I were just talking at lunch today that we both are in the same position of, you know, in real time, we're about, we're nearing the end of a first draft of our projects. But in the meantime, and especially with the workshop, because we both turned in early pages, we're learning so much about the beginning. And now the question is, do we keep going over here? Do we go all the way back? And we talked about how we are both, our instincts were both to go, to keep going all the way to the end and then go back. And she said that she had a friend who spent like, I think she said three or four years kind of constantly rewriting the first 70 pages, just kind of stuck in this loop. We all have that friend. I have, a, I have more than one writer friend who has, has fallen down that rabbit hole. And um, I think you have the right instinct to keep moving forward in the draft. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to go back and look at that first chapter again and, and work with it. But I wouldn't go back to the beginning and work the whole way through to the point where you are now. I've been really struck this week. Uh, just for me, for where I am in my writing, how much of this week has been about permission. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that journey for you, if that was something that you needed, if, you know, you just kind of had a natural, this is where I'm going and that's all right. Or did you, did you have to find these moments of it's okay that I'm doing this or it's okay that I work this way. It's okay that my stories come out this way. 
I need constant reassurance on this point. And, you know, I'm working on my seventh book, and that hasn't really changed. I get it mainly from what I'm reading, though. In the first year of a new novel, the God part, where you're doing all the initial creation, that's really the critical juncture for me. That's the point at which I need permission to, to follow all my wildest impulses. And so at that time, I deliberately seek out writers whose work emboldens me. And um, for me on Heat and Light, it was Joan Didion and Don DeLillo. These were the only writers I read uh, for about two years when I was first drafting that book because I needed courage. And those are the two bravest writers I can think of. And it really worked. It, it was emboldening in the way I needed it to be. So you must have read things numerous times. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so I, at that time, and I guess still, I had four copies of Underworld in play at all times. And by that, I mean I had one next to my bed. I kept one in my writing studio. I kept an electronic copy on my phone and another on my iPad. And one in my car, a hard copy in my car. So I guess that's five, actually. Um, because I didn't like to be far from it. What if I need it? What if I need it? So I had it on my person at all times. And I can show you, here it is still on my phone. And, and I've looked at it as recently as last week. Oh, my gosh. Yep, there it is. <laughs> And it's, oh, look, I even know which page I'm on. This is a passage I've gone back to so many times. Oh, it's, it's one of my favorite passages of DeLillo. This is in the opening chapter of Underworld, the famous chapter about the shot heard around the world, the, the famous baseball game. I have no interest in baseball, by the way, but I'm slavishly devoted to this book and particularly this chapter of this book. Here's the passage I love. There's a man in the upper deck leafing through a copy of the current issue of Life. There's a man on 12th Street in Brooklyn who's attached a tape machine to his radio so he can record the voice of Russ Hodges broadcasting the game. The man doesn't know why he's doing this. It is just an impulse, a fancy. It is like hearing the game twice. It is like being young and being old. And this will turn out to be the only known recording of Russ's famous account of the final moments of the game. The game and its extensions. The woman cooking cabbage. The man who wishes he could be done with drink. They are the game's remoter soul. Connected by the pulsing voice on the radio, joined to the word of mouth that passes the score along the street, and to the fans who call the special phone number, and the crowd at the ballpark that becomes the picture on television, people the size of minute rice, and the game as rumor and conjecture and inner history. There's a 16-year-old in the Bronx who takes his radio up to the roof of his building so he can listen alone, a Dodger fan slouched in the gloaming, and he hears the account of the misplayed bunt and the fly ball that scores the tying run, and he looks out over the rooftops, the tar beaches with their clotheslines and pigeon coops and splatted condoms, and he gets the cold creeps. The game doesn't change the way you sleep or wash your face or chew your food. It changes nothing but your life. That's incredible. And emboldening. Yes, and emboldening, mm -hmm. and emboldening. We, I just was in Fenton Johnson's class, um, and he mentioned Gertrude Stein's advice to Hemingway about 39 specifics and one abstraction. For every, you know, and, and I love that. It's, 
the the litany of physical details and then what really stands out for me in hearing it is let him be both young and old you know just this beautiful like kind of mystic observation yeah it's gorgeous what is it about didion that that feels emboldening to you i mean i know i i feel the same way but just to articulate it um everything she writes is voice driven and I find it particularly remarkable because, as a female writer, I have had no female rottles who do that sort of audacious work with voice. I think men are likelier to feel allowed to do that than women are, to pontificate, to be authorial, to be authors. Joan Didion seems to feel no reticence about that. And it's part of the reason I treasure her, and she's a writer I've gone back to again and again. There are very few role models for a young woman writer, women who, um, who are authorial in a, in a kind of fierce and unapologetic way. And she's one of the first ones I've found. My first introduction to her was Sloshing Towards Bethlehem, which I read in grad school at NYU. And, uh, and we all were obsessed with her because, oh, I mean, because she's so cool and she's so amazing. But we had learned this factoid from one of our professors, or maybe she writes this actually in, in one of the pieces, that she was so nervous to call people on the phone that the reason that she got so much out of people was she was silent. She was so nervous that she would just be kind of struck silent mm-hmm. and people hate silence and so they fill it. And so she got all of these goods. And we, you know, also hated calling people on the phone. And now that I think about the trajectory my writing has gone, I'm not surprised that it's gone the way it has, because I remember us saying to our, that same professor, you know, but we, we also really hate calling people, and he was like, you can't. Like, you have to get over that. And I was just like, no, but I, I hate it. This is why you're a novelist. Yes. There's no one to call. I know. It's yeah, great. It's very liberating. The, the real light bulb moment for me with the novel, when I realized I was working on a novel, was also, and this was very much reiterated for me, and I read very closely the acknowledgments of Heat and Light, is that you can still do research. You do so much research. Yes. Which is so much fun. Yes. And I've always liked talking to people about what they want to talk about. But I, I never liked being especially obtrusive. And I think that this, this is my ideal way to be obtrusive, to just kind of think my way in and imagine it. You know, people love to talk about their work. And that's something that benefited me as I was writing Heat and Light. So Heat and Light is a novel um, about how fracking transforms a small town in western Pennsylvania. And a lot of the uh, people I interviewed when I was doing research were guys who work on drill rigs. And it was fascinating to get them to talk about their work, because if you work on a drill rig, no one ever asks you about your work. So I found them to be very forthcoming and, and very happy to talk about it. And they must have a lot of time to think about it. I mean, they work, a, they work in very small groups, there, and they kind of work, I mean, monastically, right? Like, they have, like, camps, and they go... They're living away from their families a lot of the time. Yes. So they must, I mean, some of them, you know, must be prone to introspection about it. It's also very noisy work. So Mm. you're wearing ear protectors. You know, you have four other guys on your crew, but you're wearing ear protectors and it's very, very loud. Mm. So there's not that much chatter going on anyway. How did you find them? You know, it was surprisingly easy. Um, As I was doing online research, uh, I looked at a lot of local news sites Um, you know, the local CBS affiliate in communities where drilling was going on. And anytime there was a local news story um, about drilling, whether it was, you know, a a drilling accident or a spill, um, 
there were people would post comments to the article online. And some of the commenters would say, well, I work in the industry and, well, I, I work on a rig in that town. And let me tell you, so people were very quick to identify themselves as, as guys working in the industry. And, um, you know, I just emailed them and some of them didn't want to talk to me, but most of them eventually did. Were they perplexed about, you know, your project? You, you saying like, I'm a novelist and. Oh yeah. I mean, a lot of these guys were not readers to begin with. So just the idea of somebody sitting alone in a room for five years writing a book was utterly alien to them. Completely different definition of work. Um, So yeah, it was sort of hard to convey to them what I was doing, particularly because I didn't yet understand the scope of my project. I couldn't even explain it to myself. Um, And I think there was an initial reticence because, of course... There's a lot of political controversy around fracking. There, in a lot of these communities, there are people opposed to it. There are community groups that are trying to organize um, to prevent fracking in some of these towns. So I did encounter this initial resistance from some of these guys working in the industry, because here I am, I'm a lady writer from liberal Boston, Massachusetts, and you know, their expectation was that I was in some way critical of how they make a living, and that I had an axe to grind, and and it took some convincing to make them understand it wasn't that kind of book. And it isn't that kind of book. It is not a screed against fracking. What the novel does is try and look very honestly at, well, this is just how it is. If you lease your mineral rights and you have a drill rig 200 feet from your backyard, this is what it's like. And if you're an environmental activist and you're, you're trying to organize a community, this is what it's like. And if you're a guy who's been away from your family for six months and you're bunking at a day's in and you start work at four in the morning on a gas rig, this is what that's like. So what I was trying to do is do justice to the perspectives of all the people who are touched by this on all sides of this question. It's really an exercise in empathy. And, and I think that... It, in a basic way, all novel writing is that. It is, it is an exercise of extreme empathy. You seem to like, you know, with Baker Towers and with Heat and Light both, and again, I think this is something that I am really drawn to, is kind of like architecting elaborate maybe not elaborate, but, you know, worlds that are complete unto themselves and sort of have a scope that's not just, you know, while while you can get these very intimate moments with characters and intimate states of mind, it's also a much larger structure that you're commenting on at the same time. Is that something that you can kind of just look back at now and think, oh, that must be something that I'm interested in? Or was that, was that aware? Were you aware of that as a, as an interest? It doesn't happen with every book. Yeah. It depends on the story you're trying to tell. When I started writing Heat and Light, I did not fully grasp the size of the story. I'd read some about fracking. I had some opinions about fracking. I'm from this region where this is going on, and and I had feelings about that. Um, But I also had a lot to learn about the technology, about the geology, about the real effects on a community. What, what is it actually like when a community goes down that road? I had, I had a great deal to learn. And the more I learned about it, the more I came to understand that my subject was larger than fracking. Here's what happened. 
In the five years I spent researching and writing this novel, I was following very closely the developments in New York State, just over the border from Pennsylvania. Um, the Marcellus Shale also underlies New York, and they had the same opportunities uh, to do gas drilling there. And there was a very well-organized, effective political movement in the state of New York that effectively managed to get, get a ban placed on fracking. There is a moratorium in place on fracking in the state of New York, and it will be in place as long as Cuomo is the governor. So the environmental activists in that state won. They prevailed. Just over the border in Pennsylvania, the story was entirely different. And I could never in my wildest dreams imagine it going the way New York had gone. And I found myself wondering why. You know, Pennsylvania and New York, close neighbors, um, you know, socioeconomically pretty similar. Why was the story so different in Pennsylvania? The conclusion I came to is that unlike New York, Pennsylvania has always been an energy state. In that way, it has more in common with West Virginia and Kentucky than it does with New York. The first oil well in the world was drilled in western Pennsylvania. After that, we had 150 years of coal mining. We had deep mines. We had strip mining. Then we had the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster. So, you know, for the better part of two centuries, Pennsylvania has been on the front line of energy extraction, and it has formed the culture in very particular ways. When you grow up in a coal mining town, you unconsciously begin to equate prosperity with environmental devastation. To a lot of people there, it seems like a binary choice that a town can either be economically stable but really dirty or destitute and perfectly clean, as it has been there for the past 30 years since the mines died. For a lot of people in that region, it's a terrible choice to have to make, but they're going to choose stability and prosperity. They're tired of being poor. And this is why people in Pennsylvania tend to have a higher tolerance for some of the real environmental problems posed by fracking. Anytime I talk to somebody in Pennsylvania about whether or not to lease mineral rights, invariably I would hear, well, you know, coal mining wasn't clean either. And of course that's true. I, I mean, I grew up when the mines were active. I know coal mining wasn't clean either. Um, but it, it, it has led to this kind of acceptance about environmental consequence that is largely unconscious, but it's real. And I think this is so striking to me in West Virginia, uh, with how much emphasis, especially now in the post-coal as we're transitioning out of that economy, um, how much emphasis is placed on tourism. And a lot of people can hold both of those ideas in their mind at the same time and not understand that one devastates the other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really peculiar, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, just a very singular psychology. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What made you feel like, or did you feel, you know, before you kind of stumbled into the story that became Heat and Light, did you feel like you were done with Bakerton as a place? Every time I write about Bakerton, I swear it's the last time. Right now, I feel I will never write another word about Bakerton. Do not believe me, because I've been saying this for how many years now? So I wrote my first Bakerton novel, um, Baker Towers was my second book, but the first set in this town, came out in 2005. And at that point, I thought, okay, I've always wanted to tell the story of my hometown. Now I've done it. 
Baker Towers is the story of, um, of a company town that booms and then busts. It's exactly what happened to my town and many, many towns in Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Kentucky. After I wrote that book, I thought, okay, I did it. I'm done. I can go write about something else. And I did. I wrote a novel set in Boston where I live. Um, but, you know, an odd thing happened. Um, I found that I could not completely let go of that subject. I found myself wondering about some of those characters in Baker Towers, wondering what became of them. So I wrote a short story um, about Joyce Novak, who's kind of the main character in Baker Towers. I wrote a story in, I think, 2009. And, um, and that led me to write another story about her brother, because for years people have been asking me, what happened to Sandy, Sandy. Novak? What, what, what happened? He's sort of mysterious. He disappears and in Baker Towers. Where does he go? What, what, what's going on with him? So I wrote a story about Sandy, which led to another story about Sandy. And pretty soon I had 10 more Bakerton stories that I published as a collection in 2013 called News from Heaven. Then I thought, okay, now I'm really done. Because I wrote the boom and the bust of the mines. I wrote this whole collection of stories about how people found a way to go on after the death of mining, how they managed to continue in this town. I thought, okay, nothing else is ever going to happen here. You know, this town is about ready to dry up and blow away. So I think I'm done now. And then this fracking story came about. And it really was this kind of surprise third act for a town that was not expecting one. It was too good a story not to write. And I truly had the feeling that no one else was going to write it because no one's standing in line to write stories about dying coal towns in Pennsylvania. I pretty much have the corner on this if I want it. Um, so it was a really good story, and it drew me back. So who knows? Maybe that'll happen again. What has been your experience? I don't want to ask. I'm trying not to ask this question in a generalizing way, but when you start a project, what are the first things that come to you? You know, do you, do you hear a line? Do you think of a person? Is it just an idea? Like, I wonder what happens if I poke at this concept? I, you know, I can't possibly answer that because the six books I've written have all begun in completely different ways. So I don't have any recognizable pattern that I can see. How did Heat and Light start? Hmm. Well, this really was a novel inspired by what is happening in the world. So in this way, it's similar to Faith, the novel I wrote immediately before it. Um, these are both you know, novels that are suggested by by current events. Um, Faith is a novel set in Boston where I live now. And uh, the main character is a Catholic priest who's accused of molesting a child in his parish. Um, I mean, that is a novel I wrote in response to what was, what was happening at that time. In the city of Boston, when I moved there in 2002, this clergy sex abuse story was omnipresent. It was ambient. You couldn't get away from it. And as somebody who grew up in a devout Catholic family, went to 12 years of Catholic school, this hit me where I live. You know, I did not write faith because I had an axe to grind with the church or with Catholic priests. Quite the contrary. I can honestly say that nuns and priests were the heroes of my childhood. I had nothing but marvelous experiences with Catholic clergy. And so when I was reading these first accounts of clergy sex abuse in the Globe, it wasn't that I didn't believe it. I believed it. It was just very hard for me to square that emotionally with my own experience, which had, which had been so very different. And so that, that sort of uh, discomfort, that, that, that rub, was what led me to write that book. 
I write about things that I can't make sense of in any other way. And that was my process of trying to make sense of that story. I think that's so much of the tension of like reconciling yourself to being a writer and living a writing life is like being drawn into those areas that you don't know. And then having to like have the strength to know that like, you don't know them now, but you're, you're writing in the right direction and eventually you'll work your way into, you know, you're, you're drawn to these places that when you really think about where you're going to them, you're like, yeah. Did you write as a kid? I mean, you talked about kind of overhearing and collecting in your head all these stories. Yeah, I always did. I always have written stories. Um, You know, I was pretty lucky because um, I grew up in a house full of books. That doesn't sound so extraordinary, but where I grew up, it was. I'm pretty certain that of my childhood friends, I was the only one who grew up with a dictionary in the house. I'm sure of it. Um, My parents uh, were both great readers. My father was an English teacher. My mother was a librarian. And um, we grew up in the habit of reading, not because anybody was telling us, oh, you should read, it's good for you, but because my parents were just doing it all the time. And it was very clear to us that they derived such pleasure from reading. I remember being a very small child, not knowing how to read yet, and being so impatient to learn because it must be great. It's all my parents want to do. It must be really exciting to read. I think for parents, that is so much more effective than lecturing your kids about the importance of reading. If they see you loving it, that's, that's persuasive. Do you remember the first books that kind of really sparked you or kind of really spoke to your imagination? And I know for me, like Matilda by Roald Dahl is the one that I just kind of was like, you can do this? Like, you know, I think, I don't think I quite would have articulated it that way as a kid reader, but that was the book that really kind of blew my mind open about what books could be like and could do to you. You know, I always hated children's books. I, even as a small child, I, I disdained them. Oh, that's for kids. I'm not going to read that. It's for kids. I said at age seven, you know, it's, <laughs> it's comical now, but I was, um, I was a hardcore realist as a child. I would have no truck with fantasy, you know, cartoons I hated talking animals, anything that didn't seem real, I had no patience for. So I was drawn to stories that were realistic and didn't have children in them and were not for children. So the first things I remember reading were those Agatha Christie mysteries. And I was very young. I must have, I was an early reader and a good reader. So I was probably about eight years old when I started reading them. And what I loved about them was that they were set in different places, in different countries. Um, many of them were set in England, but they were they were set all over Europe in all sorts of places. And and as a kid who had never been anywhere from a town of people who'd never been anywhere, I was so fascinated by this. Those books, may, you know, maybe they're not great literature. I don't know. I've never looked at them as an adult. But I know that for me as a small child, they opened up the world. They made me curious about the world and made me think of travel as something that was possible. And something I might actually do one day. And that was not a message I was getting anywhere else. It was nowhere in my surroundings. I didn't know anybody who had ever traveled. I also had a big Agatha Christie phase when I was in sixth grade. Uh, And I went back, the most recently that I've reread some of her books was in college. And I enjoyed it. And I was just thinking, I was just talking with a friend about how it would be a good, like, fall kind of rainy weekend. Like, I would like to crack open, like, Murder on the Orient Express again or something. I love that one. (laughs) 
That's a great one. Yeah. I remember it so vividly. Um, but, and, and you, you struck on something and and then I took it in a slightly different direction than you. What, What I think in retrospect appealed to me about books set in different places was because we also didn't travel. Uh, you know, my dad would occasionally go on these like mysterious business trips that I didn't understand. And, um, you know, always to like boring places like Toledo and stuff, but, uh, we never really went on vacations or anything like that. And so I, I think through that, I internalized this idea, not actually that travel was possible, just that it was kind of like not available to me, which is sort of maybe the opposite lesson that you should get, but books provided this really beautiful way to do it. And I knew that I could do that. I could go to the library and and do that. Um, yeah, it's a really powerful concept to a kid to know that the world, just to know that there's a bigger world than, you know, to learn that not everybody tiptoes around the house because of late night shifts. Um, did you study writing in undergrad? I took a couple of workshops. Um, I, my first interest was in playwriting. Um, I did theater as a teenager and the first writing I was, I, was drawn to was playwriting. I will say that I showed absolutely no promise as a playwright, but I loved doing it. I just, I loved the environment. I loved being in the theater. I loved the collaborative aspect of it. So that's what I did first. Toward the end of college, I did take a couple of fiction workshops with a wonderful writer named Robert Olmsted. And I was scared to death of this guy. I mean, he was a, a big, gruff man like all the big gruff men I had known growing up. And I I was so intimidated by him and so admired him. And I learned a lot from him, truly, because I knew absolutely nothing. You know, it it wasn't hard to get 100% better in 13 weeks because I was really starting at zero as a young fiction writer. So I did get a lot better quickly. Um, And I remember asking him to write me a recommendation. I wanted to go to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And he said no. And he explained to me why. He said, well, you know, you really haven't written very much yet. And I'm concerned that in an environment like that, you're going to be crushed. You need to spend some time, read more, write more, live more. He didn't tell me I sucked. He told me I wasn't ready. And in retrospect, I can say it's among the greatest favors anyone has ever done me. So I waited 10 years, and then I did go to Iowa 10 years later, and um, I wrote my first novel. I finished writing Mrs. Kimball while I was a student at Iowa. I found an agent and um, sold that book and the next book while I was still a student at Iowa. Um, And after Mrs. Kimball was published in 2003, I sent a copy to Robert Olmsted and wrote him a letter to thank him for saying no to me. It was the right answer at the right time. And we have since you know, become great friends. But um, I will always be grateful to him for saying no. That's so, that's so, that's so beautiful. That's just, that's a lot of wisdom that he saved you from something very perilous, I feel like. I think so too. Although I will say the odds that I would have gotten into Iowa at that <laughs> time, slim to none. But that maybe would have crushed you all the same. Right, right. Um, so, you know... All the way around, it was the right decision, and it's not a decision I would have come to without his help. So I'm grateful for that still. When you first got that advice, you know, read more, write more, 
I can imagine also being at that point, you know, fresh out of undergrad and kind of being like, where do I even begin? You know, maybe you know where to begin with writing, but re- you know, did you just like start at the A's and work your way down? Oh, I had the, I had this sense that I'd always been a reader and I'd, I'd read quite a bit, although I had not read a lot of contemporary fiction. Mm. And part of this is a function of where I grew up. Um, we were easy 50 miles from a bookstore in my hometown at that time. This was long before there was an Amazon. So my only source of reading material was the public library. Our public library was very small, and the collection was made up mostly of donated books. Fortunately, most of those books were 19th century. So that's what I had read lots and lots and lots of. I had read all of Jane Austen by the time I was 14 or 15. I, I just tore my way through this little library, and then I started reading things a second time and a third time because it was a very small collection, and there wasn't any garbage. Had there been trash, I would have much preferred trash. I was dying to read trash when I was 15. I couldn't get my hands on any trash, so I read Jane Austen. Um, so I was very well read in this kind of narrow way, mostly 19th century. And I needed to learn more about contemporary fiction. I had not been an English major in college. Um, I, all the lit courses I'd taken, I'd taken in French. So there was a big hole in my, in my knowledge of contemporary literature. So I had a lot of catching up to do for sure. So can you identify a moment in that, you know, you said that you started with playwriting where you kind of switched and felt like, Oh, I'm in the right place now. This is, this is, I'm onto something here with the novel thing. It all felt like the right place. Yeah. Playwriting felt like the right place and, and wanting to be an actress felt like the right place. And you know, it's, you know, it's the great conviction. The great, I, I guess a lot of misplaced confidence in myself as a young person, but it all felt like the right place. It's like that great Steve Martin quote, like if I had been smart enough to know, I was too naive to know how bad I would be at it. And... Right. Right. So, I mean, writers hear a lot about Iowa, you know, it kind of has legends in bad and good directions. How, how was your experience there? I loved it. I, I had a wonderful two years in part because I was a little bit older. I had already worked in the corporate world. Um, I knew exactly what a precious gift it was to have two years where writing was not only at the top of my to-do list, it was my to-do list. Iowa is a remarkable program because there's almost no program. The only thing you really have to do is that workshop once a week and write stories for workshop, prepare for workshop. But as far as doing other coursework, you know, writing literary criticism, you don't have to do any of that if you don't want to. And I didn't want to. So really the only obligation I had was being ready for workshop every week. So I had, for the first time in my life, I really had time to write. And for somebody trying to write a first novel, you know that is so valuable. You need a runway. You can't work on a novel for half an hour a day and believe you're ever going to get anywhere with it. You need a stretch of time. Iowa gave me that. They're wonderful in that they fund all the students. Nobody has to go into debt to go to Iowa. If you get in, you know, they find a way to, you get in-state tuition, you um, have a chance to teach and make some money that way, and you don't need that much money to live in Iowa City. That's very helpful, too. Before that, I had been living in New York, making a lot of money. And, um, you know, there's no way I could have applied to Columbia and continued to write and live in the city and, and somehow pay for it all. You know, I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't have parents who could help me out. So Iowa was very freeing in that way, too. 
You talked about to me this week, uh, this idea of MFA as a very story focused program. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and you wrote short stories. Do you still write short stories? Yes. Okay. Uh, so what can you talk about sort of what you like about that form as opposed to a novel? You know, I love both forms. I, in general, prefer the one I'm not struggling with at the time. So when I'm writing short stories, I want nothing more than to sink into a novel for a few years. When I'm struggling with a novel, I wish I could just put it down and write some stories. So it's a grass is always greener kind of thing, you know. Um, you forget how difficult the one is when you're working on the other. They're both difficult in different ways. Um, what I like about a novel is that I wake up every morning with a clear sense of mission. I know what I'm about. I really hate starting a novel and I really hate finishing one. The whole problem with writing short stories is you're always starting and finishing, starting and finishing. So it's a lot of, a lot of being jerked around that your writing life is much more chaotic when you're writing short stories. Um, you know, I love the long, boring middle of writing a novel, you know, year three, when the phone doesn't ring and my agent has forgotten I'm alive and my editor isn't talking to me. And I love that part. That's the sweet spot. The starting and finishing is always traumatic. Um, and so that's the real problem with, with short stories is, is the starting and finishing all the time. On the other hand, there is this marvelous potential for discovery every time you begin a short story. It's kind of like the difference between dating and a long, bad marriage. You know, most dates don't go anywhere. A lot of them are not going to pan out. But there's always the possibility of discovering something great. A novel is the devil you know. You know, it's like being married for many years and you're living with the mistakes you've made in the past, with the bad decisions you've made in the past. You're living in your mistakes when you're writing a novel. And that can feel very oppressive sometimes. So going back to your daily writing practice, uh, you said the thing about the, the blank wall and the earplugs. Can you talk a little bit more about sensory deprivation as a, as a writing technique? Well, you have to make the world around you so bland and uninteresting that the internal world is more interesting. The, for me, this is the whole problem with trying to write in a cafe. I don't know how anybody does it. It's way too interesting. I would much rather, you know, study people and eavesdrop. And there, there's just too much to distract me in a cafe. Um, there's nothing to distract me in my writing studio. That's why I have it. There is no Wi-Fi. Terribly important. I never take a cell phone. Nobody knows where it is. If I die there, it's going to take a while for them to find my body. Like, I just don't disclose that because the whole point of having it is to be unreachable. I think the great challenge for writers working in this particular moment is that we are always entirely too reachable and there is an expectation from the rest of the world that we will be so. You know, now if somebody sends you an email and they don't get a response within the hour, it's like, well, well I sent you an email. And, you know, that's just, that just doesn't work for somebody who's trying to write a novel. You cannot be constantly available to everyone. You cannot reply to every, every text and email and phone call the minute it happens. You simply can't. So the whole reason for me to have this studio is to get some distance. If we didn't have all this technology, I probably would be able to work at home. But 
that's never going to happen again. That's like trying to put toothpaste back in the tube. I'm not going to get rid of Wi-Fi at home. I'm not going to become Amish, but I can sort of pretend to be Amish in my writing studio. Uh, I don't know if she's still doing this, but for a while, when you would email Rebecca Gale Howell, uh, who's a poet who's also instructing at the workshop this week, uh, you would get an auto-reply informing you that she only checks email on Wednesdays and Sundays. And I like that. I like that. I have, I have done that for a certain stretch of time, and it works very well. Um, a lot of the problem, though, is that when you finish a book, and this is why I hate finishing, because then you have to publish it. And as exciting as that is the first time you do it, Every time you publish a book, it gets a little less exciting to the point where it becomes totally unexciting because it, is, it entirely disrupts your relationship to your work. Part of the problem is the timing because typically a novel will come out, you know, 12 to 18 months after you deliver it. And that's just around the time you're getting your feet under you in a new project. And it's kind of like, you fall in love with somebody new, and then your old boyfriend starts calling you again. You don't want to be thinking about that guy. You know, you're excited about this, this new love that you found, and yet you know, the past is calling you. It's like that with a novel, because when the book comes out, you have to put down whatever you're writing now, and not just get out and deal with the world, but actually talk about that earlier book day after day after day. And it's very easy to to lose your grip on this fragile new thing that you've just begun. It's terrible timing. How does it work for you? You know, do you have to sell a new project each time or do you have a kind of standing contract now with editors you've worked with? I have um, stayed with the same publisher, which is fairly unusual in this day and age, but I have done that. And uh, all my books after Mrs. Kimball have been on contract. So um, when... HarperCollins bought Mrs. Kimball, it was a two-book contract, and the second book on that contract was Baker Towers. Then I signed another two-book contract for The Condition and Faith. Then another two-book contract for Heat and Light, and whatever the hell is going to come next. Um, So that's how I've always worked in the past. That is not for everyone. I know writers who say, my God, I could never do that. It would be paralyzing to think that I have a deadline and somebody's waiting for my novel. I have just the opposite response. I like knowing that at least someone's going to read this thing, that I'm not just throwing it out into the universe. You know, it, it is actually very motivating for me. I don't find it um, inhibiting at all. Yeah, it sounds incredibly comforting. It you is. Know, it's just like this... It is. this- welcome places ready for you whenever you're ready for it. Yeah. I've heard writers say to me in these conversations, uh, that they really cherish that phase of working on the novel. I hear first time novelists especially say this a lot because no one's expecting anything from them. And they talk about when it can just be theirs. And I don't know that I quite get that. And maybe, you know, maybe once I sell a novel, you know, God willing, I'll, I'll understand that a little bit more, but it seems to me so much nicer to, uh, to have a little bit of an expectation on you because you feel like there's, there's somebody like, you know, that's waiting for you. That is the upside. There is good and bad. I do understand that sentiment though, that your first novel is so completely yours. Um, I mean, your own mother does not care if you finish your novel. She'll pretend she does. She doesn't care. 
Nobody cares. Nobody wants to read it. Nobody, nobody wants to hear about it. So you really are alone with your work. This deep aloneness that is very hard to get later on. It's wonderful to have readers. It's wonderful to meet people who say, you know, I've read all your books and, you know, I'm, I can't wait for the next one. And there, there's nothing more lovely. Um, but, you know, it's, you have to do this kind of, at least I have to do this kind of mental gymnastics. I can't think too much about what other people are going to make of what I'm writing. When I'm in the writing phase, I can't be thinking about, well, what, what's my mother going to say when she reads this? You know, um, you know, or reviewer for the New York Times, or, you know, my boyfriend, or I care what those people think, but I can't, that can't be a concern in my mind when I'm writing, or I'd never read another word. So it's really, you almost have to be like a horse with blinders on in a way so as not to spook yourself. I cannot, I cannot allow myself to think too much about that because it, it is very inhibiting. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about the business of writing and just sort of, you know, like, are you able to only write? You know, do you, do you teach as well? Is it? I teach seldom. Um, I love teaching, but it is difficult to do both things well at the same time. And because I've never had a regular teaching commitment, I have bad habits when I teach. Normally in my, in my real life, when I wake up in the morning, even before I open my eyes, my first thoughts are always about the novel I'm writing, about the characters. And so it's, it's like that tape is, must be running all night while I'm sleeping because those are my first thoughts when I'm not even totally awake yet. That is true except when I'm teaching. And for those semesters, my first thoughts are about my students' stories, invariably, every day. So it's very clear to me that teaching and writing, for me, are running off the same battery. And if I'm doing one, I can't properly do the other. So my reasons for not teaching is, is really that, that most of the time I need, I need the time more than I need the money. Part of the reason for that is that I'm really good at being poor. This is, this is my hidden superpower as a writer. I'm great at being poor. Also, you know, I don't have other people depending on me. I don't have children. I don't have anybody to buy braces for. I don't have anyone to send to college. So that gives me a bit more ease in terms of the material realities of life. I have a lot of friends, um, you know, who do have families, and it's much, much harder for them to squeak by, you know, on, on, a, on a shoestring in the way I'm really comfortable doing. When you're doing your shifts, are you a butt in the chair until that shift is up? kind of writer. No, no, it's not like that. It's, and it's not like I have to force myself to stay in the chair. I want to be in the chair. Um, this has been the great discovery of my mid-career. I love writing more now than I did at the beginning. And I remember when I was, before I published a book, um, hearing Amy Hempel um, talk about how, you know, how publishing was sort of complicated and sometimes unpleasant. And the good part was just being alone with the work. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, right, Amy Hempel. Sure, that's true for you. And, you know, it's true for everybody. It's just you don't see that when you're starting out because publishing seems like the reward. It seems so, it's, it seems so glamorous and so elusive. Um, and at this point in my writing life, seven books in, I understand that the doing of the work is the reward. And publishing is the price you have to pay in order to be allowed to be left alone for a few more years to write another book. That is actually the reward. When, when do you think that that started to become apparent to you? 
it, it, it became truer over time. So it was a very gradual realization, certainly after the first one. I mean, publishing the first one is really exciting. And it's never been that quite that exciting again, you know. Um, but I think certainly um, with faith and heat and light, I, I just sunk into the writing process of both of those books in, in a very pleasurable way. What do you, you know, presuming that it, it doesn't, it doesn't go that well every day, what do you, what do you do for yourself when it's not going as well? Well, I, I believe that if I have shown up to work and done what I could do, then I'm off the hook for the rest of the day. So I, I try and look at it in this sort of binary way that I don't have much control over whether I have a good writing day or a bad writing day. The part I control is that I have a writing day. So I have engineered my life to allow me to show up every day, and I continue to show up every day. And some days are so, are so unproductive that all I did was throw away everything I wrote yesterday. So that's, it's negative productivity, really. And, and that will you know, never stop. There will always be days like that. And I don't look upon those as failures anymore. I, I guess, you know, I've been down this road so many times. I understand that writing just, it's not something you control completely. The best you can do is show up. What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? It's about sentence making. It always has been, but that has become truer over time. I truly believe the only reason I write novels is to have an excuse to make a lot of sentences. And, you know, my favorite stage of the process is the final six months or so, when really all I'm doing is putting in commas and taking them back out again. I could do that for years on end, just play with the music of the sentence, play with the rhythm of it. I love to punctuate. I think it's the thing I do best as a writer. I'm very critical of other people's punctuation. I really have a geeky interest in punctuating. And so, yeah, I'm very happy to spend many, many months punctuating and repunctuating and getting those sentences to sound the way I want them to sound. Visit us online at wmfapodcast.com to find links to some of the things we talked about today and to subscribe to the show and the WMFA newsletter, which includes episode notes and exclusive content. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Get in touch at hello at wmfapodcast.com or on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>